do 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 and we're the book fair boys. The book fair boys. Hi everybody, my name's Sam. And my name's Ben. And we're the, the book, book fair, fair boys. boys. <laughs> Great. Do you think we got it? It's it's wonderful, I'm sure. <laughs> Probably nice. I really That's hope, fancy. Yeah, I really and you're drinking that like simultaneous to the cup of coffee that you're drinking? No, no, the cup of coffee is from earlier this morning. <laughs> Uh, sometimes you just take a hit of coffee, you know, before you start podcasting, but it's yeah. very cold, old coffee in a Superman mug. Oof. So it is sitting here, nice. but it's not being actively drunk. We might finish the dregs later. I mean, it depends on how this podcast goes. The Superman mug reminds me, I've been watching the uh, Harley Quinn show recently. Have you seen any of that? No. So I don't have HBO Max. It was on oh. the DC streaming service. It was like, so I follow um, one of the podcasts that I follow pretty religiously is the weekly planet which is a fun little podcast that talks about as they say movies and comics and tv shows and they recently did a highlight of that because it's one of those sort of few dc Hmm. streaming service offerings that actually turned out to be good and so it's on my radar and i'm guessing the fact that you're mentioning it means that it actually is good oh yeah it's awesome i i never really got into the DC cartoon universe. Uh, it just never exactly seemed like my thing. I, 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 I don't know. I just never got into it. Okay? <laughs> St- leave me alone! <laughs> <laughs> Guys, I'm just sitting um, here quietly understanding what Sam's saying. Ben just has, like, the most blank listening face. It doesn't, like... <laughs> he's not accusing me of anything. Um, but no, no, no. It was never really a thing that I got into, but then a friend recommended the Harley Quinn show, and it's really impressive have you seen any of the old wb stuff the batman animated series batman beyond that sort of stuff yeah i've seen episodes here and there of like all of those shows so i like i know all the stuff and i used to watch some of like the original teen titans i Mm. was sort of into for a while but it was never something that i like really followed uh, until the harley quinn show and now it's this show is making me want to go back and explore uh, more of those shows. What makes it good, Sam? I've heard that it's adult, but not super adult. I've heard it's fun. I've heard it's BoJack Horseman, except superheroes. I've heard lots of things. A lot of the first season is about Harley trying to cope with her codependent relationship with the Joker, and the depiction that they have of the Joker is this, like, supreme narcissist and she's you know heavily codependent which has always sort of been the harlequin narrative and the dceu is trying to reshape that narrative now even with like the margot robbie stuff Mm. but i think the show just does such a good job of it and in general pokes fun and satirizes a lot of the like batman universe things that i know like you know calendar man is a dumb supervillain or like um again what's another one? Oh, poison ivy has a lot of stuff about how like you know people would be like oh well poison ivy aren't you evil and she's like yeah i guess if you call caring for plants evil which the government does you know she's awesome i i really love their depiction of poison ivy it put me in the mood to go back and play the arkham asylum games mm. and both harley and poison ivy are just so caricatured over sexualized creatures Hmm. in that game 
and playing the game after watching the show uh, it makes me feel a little weird because i'm like oh but poison ivy and is so much more than this like, harley <laughs> quinn is so much more than this you know she's just straight up not wearing pants and i'm like this is just a character who makes out with men and likes flowers and wears no pants <laughs> and like <laughs> you know and to see her evolve so far past that yeah. in the harley quinn show is so cool and, and there's a lot of little things like that i really recommend it and it is also just funny as hell what are you watching now ben what what's a wreck that you can throw out oh what am i watching right now you know honestly a lot of what i've been watching has been distraction tv i haven't been paying a whole lot of attention to to trying to like i don't know so we're in some 2020 vibes right we're in quarantine vibes we've been through the catalog of 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 really good stuff we've moved on to the (laughs) mediocre and now Uh, we're just uh, uh scraping the bottom of the barrel. So I've been watching a whole lot of Offline TV, which is a gamer house in California, OTV, and they're fun. They're just a bunch of like, you know, 20-somethings who all live in a house together and they're all fairly, you know, kind, woke people and they both play video games together. They've been playing a lot of this game called Among Us and I just literally put it on in the background. If I'm not writing or I'm not reading I've been having that go on in the background, essentially. Among Us is fun because it's essentially... So, you know, this is this is a super deep cut that we'll probably cut. But uh, Among <laughs> Us is is a game that's essentially mafia. So, you know, oh, you know cool. it's not complicated. The rule set is fairly straightforward. But it's a really great party game. Um, you have a bunch of little dongle boys running around in their spacesuits, and they all have to achieve certain amount of tasks and you have two win conditions you've got the win condition of you vote off two of the imposters because you have imposters who are killing the people the whole time um so they're oh. pretending to do tasks and then they're killing some of the other little dongle boys or you win by accomplishing the tasks and so there's like a natural timer oh. in the, on the imposter team that they have to kill it's usually 10 max, and then there's usually two imposters. So there's this like sort of natural timer. Each game is five minutes. And it's just fun to watch a bunch of people try to lie to each other, especially when they're really bad at lying. And they're all 20-somethings <laughs> living in the same house and can hear each other shouting from the room whenever you know one of them gets, gets killed. Yeah. So that's been a whole lot of what I've been doing. But what I've been reading, I've been revisiting Douglas Adams for... Oh, nice. Yeah. You know, I've been thinking about that. Yeah, it's been really good. He's just... It's such a classic, the whole Hitchhiker's Guide series. And what makes it so interesting to me is the fact that he kept rewriting it. You know, this was kind of a magnum opus in the sense that this man spent his entire life just developing one story over and over and over again. He found his thing, Hmm. and he didn't really try to evolve beyond it in any way, shape, or form. He just tried to kind of perfect the one thing that he did well. Mm -hmm. So I had recently come across... An article that was like looking at the evolution of Hitchhiker's Guide and had pulled a bunch of nuggets from his preface to whatever edition it was after the movie came out and essentially was exploring the fact that this, you know, started as a radio play and you can tell that that was what this article was about is you can tell that as a book it started as a radio play because it's very episodic it's very disconnected each of the chapters and adventures feel like they have a natural beginning middle and end. And that was really kind of got my brain going again with not only my own piece, but with just in general, the idea of episodic continual storytelling, the idea that your novel doesn't necessarily have to be 
a you know straightforward beginning to end narrative you can compose a novel of what are essentially mini episodes um which is not very it's not very in vogue right now you know in vogue tends to be the idea that you're you know structured in a way that is totally progressive and this is actually i think a bit more in line with what you see today when you look at like netflix tv shows where they have season arcs i mean if hitchhiker's guide is kind of perfectly built to be a bunch of 10 minute episodes to 20 minute episodes that gradually build and gradually develop into an overall narrative and so yeah we're reading reading it for that purpose and also just because it's i don't know incredibly interesting to me that douglas adams his entire life kept telling the same story over and over again i mean every version is different if you listen to the old radio play it's incredibly different from the book which is incredibly different from the republished american version in some small small ways but small important character beats which is very very different from the film and very different from the video game you know and he wrote all of them he was the primary writer and creative force between all of these things the video game is really interesting Um, yeah i i mean and some of the things are you know completely iterative i know we talked in one of our episodes i think it was the dummy episode about how Sometimes you just discover things in first drafts that you didn't really intend, and so you start chasing them, and how, you know, you, oh, I found this character, now I have to describe this character's relationship to the main character. And it's really funny to think of things like Marvin the android, the depressed android. Like, he did not think Marvin, like, that was a one-off. He wrote Marvin initially just as a funny character that was going to be a part of the very, like, small subsection of the beginning. But audiences to the radio show really liked Marvin. And so he's like, okay, we need to reincorporate more of Marvin and we need to develop him. And now, you know, he's part of like the five novel arc of this series somehow. Doesn't he become seen as a god or like worshipped by a sect of people at some point? Yeah. Who like are praying to Marvin? He has a a bunch of misadventures. That's why I'm going back through it. I have this Barnes and Noble Ultimate Hitchhiker's Guide bound version that looks like a Bible and it's got all five of the original novels plus the novella that he wrote about Zaphod. Oh, I, you know, I didn't really like that. I, I I remember it, like, Zaphod being alone in a swab for a bit, and I was like, I don't know, he was never really my favorite character, so I was sort of like, I don't know. Yeah, it's funny, though, it's weirdly prescient when you look at, I mean, I guess absurdism is always weirdly prescient, especially, well, maybe it's not always, it's really, really weirdly prescient in 2020, absurdism in general, and, like, his view of intergalactic politics combined with Zaphod is, I mean, it's got idiocracy written all over it, and it's very Trumpian, the idea, like, the joke being that it's, it's also, like, got these conspiracy theory deep state vibes that seem like they would go really well with both people who support and don't support Trump, where the idea mm. is that that you have this, like, figurehead in place who's absurd and over the top and whose one purpose is to distract other people from where the real power lies, which is Zaphod's whole deal is that he doesn't quite like that. I mean, he knows that that's yeah. what he does, but he also tries to rebel against it, you know, in an interesting way. Um, I think Sam Rockwell nails that vibe. Yeah. Like, a lot of people shit on the movie, and for fair reasons. I think that (laughs) has a lot going for it. I mean, the cast alone is exceptional, I think. Dude, Mos Um, Def kills it. Yeah. Mos Def kills it. I mean, what's-her-name is fine, just like she's fine Uh, Oh, everything. Daniel, yeah. Daniel, yeah. Um, and um but fucking uh yeah he's he kills it what is his name martin freeman martin Martin freeman Freeman. he kills it he 
kills it. Um, he is so Arthur Dent spot on, like, in my head. I don't know, it's sort of cool watching, because I didn't know who he was, you know, in 05, pre-Bilbo. Um, <laughs> but then you start seeing him around and stuff, and I was like, oh yeah, he was in Shaun of the Dead. Or like, oh my god, he is in this thing. Like, he's yeah. actually very watchable. He's, he's a super watchable dude. And was in the UK office. He was in the original office. Yeah, that's right. He was the gem um, of the UK office, and then he was... Yeah. Uh, the other big thing that he did on BBC was he was Watson to the dude's Sherlock um, yeah, but Cumberbatch. even that was like um, yeah, bubble, bubble stick. Bubble uh, stick. <laughs> but, uh, even that was like what twenty ten that that started twenty twelve. Yeah, it's true. It's um, true. So it's interesting that you call Adams absurdist because when I think of absurdism, I really think of like you know Beckett is foremost in my mind, yeah. and I think that um, or Ionesco, you know, and so I think maybe that's what I've been really craving and trying to go back to some of these like childhood classics, like series of unfortunate events. Yeah. I would call absurdist. I would too. Um, yeah. And Hitchhiker's guide for sure. A lot of Vonnegut stuff. And I think I've just been craving that now that I've spent two years analyzing the order of things, I'm realizing just how fun I thought the disorder was when I was a kid and yeah. why I really vibe with that because I think life is absurd in general anyway. So, yeah, I definitely want to go back and, and check out Hitchhiker's Guide. Disorder is a fun way to think about it. And I, I think healthy appreciation of chaos. You know, it's hard to define absurdism yeah. because it takes so many different forms. And, I mean, it, even when it was formally being explored as a genre that was, like, tying together Beckett and Ionesco, there was the sort of argument about is this i forget what the terminology is i'm like calling back to my undergrad here which is way in the past <laughs> but like there was the there was ionesco described like it in terms of dishes i think where he talked about how like beckett is like spaghetti he used um italian terminology hmm. but like beckett is like spaghetti absurdism and i'm like lasagna <laughs> like a spaghetti yeah and i'm yeah. like a, i'm like a lasagna you know or somebody somebody described <laughs> him in those terminologies with like the idea being that like you have absurdism combined with either minimalism or excess and i mean there's something to be said too about how grounded the universe needs to be for it to still be considered absurdism versus just tragic comedy but but i think hitchhiker's guide hits that like sweet spot where it's just that healthy appreciation of chaos and of disorder and of the inability to have a, a strict through line you know what i mean where where you get to the end and yeah. you feel a sort of satisfaction or catharsis at the end point because a lot of these books don't like i i didn't finish a series of unfortunate events not because i didn't like it but just because i think i outgrew it by the time it was finished but i remember that's yeah, the that feeling was, of the every same one problem yeah yeah the, the feeling of every single one of those books is is that you get to the end and there's no catharsis or purgation there's just this continued sense of prolonged disorder like okay we're in the yeah. next house we're moving towards the next safe place but we're still in this space of disordered non-safety which is interesting yeah, i think that's a great way to put it and like that feels really helpful to think about like excess or decadence you know like even working on this novel now and the part that i brought into our writers group where i like go on this tangent about just describing the room and being like oh one chair one one of these chairs has one leg that's renfield wood and that's the stuff that in writing i love but i sort of forgot that i loved hmm. as i was working on the novel because i was just trying to get through the novel you know that it became less fun but i've been having more of that like sort of decadent tangential fun in my short stories which has been nice to sort of rediscover that you know feels very 
Douglas Adams, when I think about like where I might have gotten that, the first thing I think of is like the flower pot and the whale. Yeah. And the flower pot thinks not again because it's the fucking thing that's like been reincarnated and he was like, but I he was a fly once. But he like, didn't know that. That's the thing that's so brilliant is I think he just yeah. chases impulses. Like he's like, it's really funny for the flower pot to say not again. And then, yeah. you know, like four or five years later, he's writing his fifth book and he's like, let's explain the flower pot. You know, he, he like accidentally yes. sets things up because he follows these id impulses towards just chaos and disorder and funny yeah. one-offs that don't actually need to promise anything because whether it promises something or not is not the point of that it's just fucking funny right like especially yeah. when you have in contrast like there's something about rhythm and perspective shifting there where you go from the perspective of this whale which is so innocent and beautiful and fun and it's falling it's discovering the world and then it's dead and that's a weird tragic absurd journey and then you're like the flower pot had one thought it was not again and and like you know what i mean your, your perspective shift is is like its own joke the fact that it thought not again is its own joke there's like so much yeah. that he just nails so yeah, I'm trying to explore perspective shifting, too, as a means of moving plot forward, because, you know, one of the things that I'm discovering is the more you're rooted in one perspective or one narrative perspective, like you can have a narrator that exists above and over the story that you're writing that, you know, jumps from like story to story that they're observing. But like yeah. every story you're observing is its own perspective, kind of like Douglas Adams does, where the world gets blown up and the next thing you know, you're in Zaphod's perspective, even though... It's a close third in both cases. But there's something to be said about like how that progresses the story forward. You know, like you sort of reach this point of absurd conclusion. You're not sure where you're going to go next. And then, you know, in an episodic story structure, it doesn't matter because you've finished part one and we can just go to Zaphod's story now of stealing the infinity absurdity drive or whatever the hell it's called, you know? Sure. Yeah. yeah. And, and I mean, and that's its own sort of mini story. So it's interesting exploration. I don't know why we've been talking about this so long, except I just find it fascinating. I find Douglas Adams fascinating oh, yeah, yeah. because this I think he's he's a genius, but he never was really trying to be. He was always just trying to be a hobo who was backpacking across Europe and just happened to find a couple good stories that he kept rewriting over and over again. Well, and that's sort of the inspirational part for me too, is that you hear so much about these authors who have rigid writing regimens if I get too rigid with my schedule, I just feel like, you know, there has to be a week. I'll, I'll make it through like maybe five weeks. And then the sixth week, I'll be like, I just need to play video games this week. You know, <laughs> um, I just need to completely fuck off. Um, which I think is why I had such a stress headache the other day. Cause my body was just like, no, you don't need to do anything today. You need to sit under a weighted blanket and relax. And you know, as soon as I got under there with my like sleeve of saltines, I was like, Oh my God this is relaxing. Like I really needed this. This is Zen. Um, I found Zen. <laughs> yeah. But in my, like, you know, that's interesting to me because I felt like I had been fulfilling my like higher purpose in being like, okay, it's fucking time, man. 2000 words a day. You get a sticker for every day. You do it. Try to fill in every single day. Yeah. And after about like 50 days of that, I was like, I'm going to take this week off, though. You know, I just, like... So, just to, like, hear the stories about Douglas Adams, like, literally crawling out of his window to avoid his agent or whoever was like, <laughs> you have to finish the book, I locked you in your room. To hear stories about uh, an intellect that is a huge inspiration, but 
it treats itself with modesty, I yeah. guess, or humility, or, like, still loves being alive, in a sense, that yeah. I, like, you know, you can talk about, like, whatever the fuck, Anthony Trollope wrote a hundred novels or whatever, but he also, that was his life, you know, I would like to do other things with my time as yeah. well, but it just feels strange to say that, because this is my passion, you know, this is what I want to do, but is it who I want to be? I don't know. These are big questions. It's interesting because I feel like writers in general tend to be renaissance people. Not renaissance people in the classic sense, but they tend to have varied interests. They like to try lots of things. Most of the writers that I know aren't streamlined and, and clinically focused. You know, they have their passion, but they tend to have a lot of iterative interests. And, you know, this is not universal, right? Like there are several different types of writers there's lots of different things but i've noticed in my own life that that's true that and we were talking about this before about how even with like working out it's like squat and deadlift for five years focus on powerlifting for five years and then you don't have access to a barbell anymore but you're still interested in doing something so you just do yoga for six months you run for a few months you focus on hiking and long distance walking like that's always been my modus operandi and i feel like in that setup there's always going to be this sort of iterative idea of progression because you're always going to be taken by different ideas. And I, I don't know, even in the writing s- section, this might all be bullshit, but even in like writing itself, you know, there's like varied interests that I see in the geniuses that I appreciate. You know, sometimes it's starting off in in playwriting and then progressing to other things like T.S. Eliot, you know, poetry, playwriting, novels, you know, varied success, but it was about that mind that's always at work and always trying to find new forms to engage or, you know, again, in Douglas Adams, radio plays, video games, movies, you know, it's all the same story, but it's about finding different modes of expression and different ways to do it. And I think, I don't know, there's something to me that's more interesting than that, than not just Trollope, but like all of the well-made play people, the, you know, ones that are cranking out material and just constantly at the keyboard. In terms of minds I'm interested in looking at, there's something very fascinating about rigorous progression but there's also something really interesting about the people who end up constantly being iterative and finding ways to explore different material through the same lens yeah. of their own perspective. I think people like Stephen King are shadows that are really difficult to escape from under. But I think, too, about like in order to be a writer, there has to be some impetus to escape this world or to provide some kind of distraction from this world or to illustrate something about this world especially as a horror writer and to have both of your kids turn out as horror writers, I think really says something about <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, so I like, you can aspire to be Stephen King as much as you want, but also that's like an intellect who's done a bunch of Coke and like probably didn't talk to his family for entire weekends. <laughs> like, um, Ooh, ah, he wrote this one novel in a weekend, but also like, did he see his kids that weekend? Like probably, you know, uh, probably not. <laughs> Joe had a baseball game that you fucking missed. Cause you were working on running man you dick like you know who knows um so i don't know i really feel now like there's a push now to be a writer you know you have a writer twitter you have a regimen because famous writers have a regimen yeah and you're you're doing you are doing the act of being a writer versus like living your fucking life as a writer you know and how do you manage the two like what what is healthy within that spectrum i guess that's something that i've been thinking a lot about do i really try to get my 2000 words a day sticker 
or are there days that I'm like, I just can't do it today, you know? Yeah. Um, like, what does that look like, and what am I okay with, I guess? Yeah, and it doesn't help that any YouTube video you look up on how to be a productive creative looks like it was made by somebody who is an actual robot. <laughs> like, like CGP Grey, I love that guy. Do you know CGP Grey, the YouTuber? No. He's great. He's an interesting creative, but he does a lot of, like, advice stuff. And he's just like, yeah, you know, like, I have weekend Wednesdays where I take Wednesday off and Saturday off, but then that makes sure that I don't have two days off in a row so that certain things happen. And I make sure that I set my small short-term goals and long-term goals. And hmm. if you actually do all of this, you're an impressive robot. You're a very impressive robot to have, like, your... Yeah. you know, progressives set up on your 12 different creative goals at any given time. But I know you're bullshit because you've promised me videos that I have not fucking received. I want them on my Patreon. I'm a patron, you motherfucker. Give me those videos yeah. about, you know what I mean? Like, it's it's, yeah. it's interesting because there's easy to give lots of advice about, I, I joke, CGP to Grey, um, but... Uh, he's one of the, he's he, one of the 10 He's one of the 10 listeners. listeners. He's like, hey! <laughs> hey, that's not very nice. <laughs> I, I, dear diary <laughs> i joke but it's easy to give advice about productivity is i guess the thing right like everybody kind yeah of well knows, those who can't do right yeah and i mean and everybody knows it fucking give yourself an hour of exercise you know you have to step away all great writers start your day off by focusing on writing in the first two to three hours and then walk for an hour and then come back make sure that you have a separate space that's set aside for your writing versus your actual life you know maybe write some letters to think get things started or emails in the modern world i mean like we've all read yeah. these things and it's easy to give that advice but the simple fact is it's fucking hard to follow it sometimes and maybe it's not the best thing to do to be productive it's it's productivity is about seasons too it's not just about the marathon yeah you really got to fill the tank sometimes you know i was thinking a lot about you know if i'm having a hard time with this novel like what are the stories that i really like and what are the stories that i want to tell and so i bought like a bunch of shitty b-movie you know dvds from a flea market and like yeah. Um, replaying this Batman game. I don't know what it's all for. I guess, and and that's maybe the thing too, is that you're like, oh, am I being lazy or am I filling the tank? And I think that that's, <laughs> yeah, I, like genuinely, I think that that's the worry that I really deal with, where I'm like, is this my creative brain needing something or is this my like dumb brain being like, well, you could just play as Batman instead of writing <laughs> Something. Don't you want to be Batman? Yeah. Wouldn't you rather be Batman than a dumb, boring writer sitting in your boring writing room? <laughs> or I'm like, I should really edit that short story that I wrote. And my brain's like, where you could be Batman? You know, <laughs> I don't know if that's my creative brain needing a minute or like my lazy brain being lazy. It's a hard question, I think. But uh, Ten viewers, anyway. including CGP Grey, write in and let us know what you think. Is it Sam's lazy brain? Or is it his creative brain? Leave yeah, the comments $10 down below. $10 to anybody who says it's my creative brain. <laughs> $10. <It's> like, <laughs> you're doing it. <laughs> Yay. Don't, you're not lazy. Don't promise that, Sam. When this is a million subscriber podcast, you're going to be out, out $10 for Oof. lots of people. Solid 10 mil. <laughs> Listen, we're never going to have a million dollar podcast <laughs> if we can't. Daddy, help me, Daddy. <laughs> But it's so true that you like, and this kind of goes back to what I was saying about like laziness versus your creative flow that like, you know, sometimes the work that you do on JSTOR is just as important as the work you do high watching Harley Quinn. We're like, <laughs> holy shit, that's a good idea. Yeah, you know, yeah. 
I think both fill the tank uh, equally in different ways. No, I, I agree with that 100%. I mean, you know, as long as your brain is in a place where the consumption is focused on on somehow turning inwards, right? It's focused on, it's like a mm-hmm. digestive consumption. It's not a distractive consumption, you know, because that, there, yeah. there are times where you consume media just to be able to be passing the time. I, I experienced right. that where it's like, you know, there's there's dead brain time, it's the end of the day, I'm done thinking, and I'm gonna consume some media that will, you know, sort of be background noise to my dead brain time. That's not productive. And not everything has to be productive, you know, but there are, I would say like, one of the nice things I think about the internet revolution is it it has sort of legitimized that with at least within the creative space, there's sort of like a more democratic approach to like how different versions of media can all be equally valuable when it comes to, you know, fueling creative thought because Hmm. I mean, because it can be, you know, it's like it can be a dumb meme picture and it's still stirs something within you you know and suddenly you're in the consuming mode that's focused on digestion and you're just scrolling through reddit yeah yeah and it definitely feels better to me to turn on any kind of horror movie than it does like a reality show because the horror movie is still something that i can use even when i'm relaxing yeah i'm like oh i see how they like build tension here or whatever you know yeah and i i also don't want to completely like shit on offline tv i mean i know i kind of like poo-pooed them in the beginning and was like but douglas adams you know and did the argument for authority but like yeah. honestly part of why i've been consuming so much of offline tv over their last like couple months is i have had something that i've been working on for the last couple years and i don't know what it's going to be but i'm, I'm increasingly interested in the bizarre nature of performative self that exists hmm. for internet celebrities because there's sort of this interesting tension of not ever quite being yourself, but also always having to be yourself. And so you're, you know, we all have performative selves, but the idea well, that you're yeah, performative say, self hell, is, that's everybody. Yeah, yeah. But the idea that that's the thing, right? Like that is, mm-hmm. that's not only your, that's your mode of finance. Like that's your personal self. It's like, you know, most people separate themselves, their performative selves into like different subgenres. I've got my work performative self. I've got my, you know, performative self that's for my family. I've got my perform when it's, when you're always on, like there's this sort of weird space where you're just constantly having to be one version of yourself that ends up becoming yourself. And I guess there's something like most people can separate their professional performative self from who they are. Right. And so anyways, point being, I'm increasingly interested in, especially for 20 somethings, you know, the people that grew up on the internet that are Twitch streamers, and that's just always on. They literally live in a house where this is what you do, is you just, yeah. you know, every once in a while somebody might be live streaming. What the fuck must that be like? And what the fuck must that I be mean, like 100 years? Like, let's even just say 50 years from now. When you're a 70-year-old, what the fuck do you reflect back on? You know what I mean? Yeah, About that I mean, time. you know, it's insane to me. I've seen, like, YouTube documentaries about YouTubers or, like, YouTube exposés about, yeah. like... What was that dude like Logan Paul? Yeah, Jake Paul. Jake Paul. Yeah, and just the things that they uncover are so trite or like pithy. But it's like, oh, here's this big revelation. Like, I actually didn't hook up with Logan that night, and everyone's like, what? And I'm like, <laughs> but you're what the fuck? You're an adult. Like, you don't care about anything else. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I know. Just, like, 
it just it just drives me nuts and like the feeling of having to constantly report on yourself drives me crazy well Um, it's particularly interesting again the reason i like otv versus some of the other houses because there's so many out there it's exhausting now like it's a subgenre of youtube that you have a a group house But I've seen a fun house, some of their stuff. Yeah, and, fun house and yeah. hype house was like having all those parties out in LA yeah. recently. And that's right. But like yeah. OTV is relatively normal in the sense that most of them were Twitch gamers, like before they became a thing, and so they had a sort of they had an online personality already. They had a thing, and now they're doing the house thing. It leads to an interesting energy because most of them, because most of them, even though they're performative, the way that they were performative was Twitch, which is like a little bit less intrusive because you set the hours, you set the genre, you know what you're doing. It's not, I'm always live blogging. It's interesting because it's still performative, but it's a little bit less of this like, you know, drama oriented bullshit, right? But you still get that. I mean, like, there was OTV drama, like, a couple of weeks ago because, you know, they had to throw out one member of the house because he was being toxically masculine and kind of gaslighting two of the ladies, telling them, Oof. you know, and it was like, uh, and there's some drama, and then everybody had to comment on the drama. It was like, oh, fuck, I didn't know he was doing that. And then they had to tweet about it because people were, like, harassing the ladies. And that's all super interesting to me, too. Right. Like, from, like, like a, from a perspective of, like, writing about this space, it's all very interesting to me when the drama becomes such a thing that like you have people who are trying to recess themselves from the drama and process something difficult that's happened to them that's having to be performative to an audience that wants to know how are you reacting to this you know right i mean that makes me think of like what was it the glee cast who like the one glee person was found dead or drowned or something oh, shit. and I everyone this. i i might be thinking of the wrong thing but it was like then everyone on twitter was like why didn't the rest of the glee cast comment on it why did they hate so-and-so and the glee like the cast came out and they're like we don't hate so-and-so we're fucking mourning so-and-so so we weren't on twitter yeah dick. like yeah. and that shit just drives me nuts you know i like even with everything happening now i like have such an anxiety about like well what do i say on social media and then i'm like who gives a shit like yeah my my hundred instagram followers are like why didn't you post something about blah 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 and i'm like i literally only use my instagram to promote this show and like an occasional post about observing social distancing (laughs) (laughs) it is like all my stories um and i guess there's a lot of like privilege and other things that go into that as well but like the requirement that every individual say something because you are no longer just an individual you are a brand and an entity is nuts you can never just be a person in the bar who like you know tom you are you're not saying anything about our state joining the union what do you think about that it is well and everything has so much stakes you know it's like this guy fedmeister gets thrown out of this otv house and like I apologize to the OTV people who are all listening to this right now. I understand that, like, I'm going to do a gross disservice to your to your drama here and also to your struggles as humans. But, like, yeah, Fedmeister gets thrown out of this house, and it's because he did such, a lot of, like, things that were described as, like, unnerving and creepy. Like, you know, again, there are 20-year-olds that all live in this house together, but they're all, like, nominally friends. And, you know, it would be things like, coming and like being super drunk and coming and like laying down in one girl's bed and then just being like oh i'm very drunk i need a hug and and i forget what it was and and yeah and so like and this person was like 
yeah, you know, this happened twice. The first time I talked about it and I was like, this is not cool. Anyways, so the drama's happening. But then, like, to be in a scenario where you've processed this with your intimates, right? The people that are all living in the same house and you've made a decision and it was a hard decision. You know, it's a conflict that's now going to be a rupturous thing. You're not going to have the same relationship with this person afterwards. And then to have to, like, sit down and write a three-page letter because you can't just can't be on Twitter. That you can post Twitter and be like, look at this because I can't comment on it. It's just a very weird scenario to have to be in. Like, when it comes to your personal life, I mean, because your personal life is your brand, which is the product you're selling. And so it's like, of course, there has to be a statement, but that's such an interesting and weird position to be in because everybody's selling themselves regardless of what industry you're in. But when you're selling yourself as a, oh, I'm just a lifestyle TV gamer sort of thing, like, it's Mm -hmm. so intimate. So anyways, I guess... How did we get on this? What the fuck is happening right now? <laughs> okay, so to bring it back, right? Like, um, if you if your brand is a hawk or a wolf, okay. and you do something within yes. that brand that upsets another member of your team, um, then you can afterwards apologize and be like, I'm sorry, man. I just, you know, my Instagram followers think I'm a 